Hey, kid. Oh, hey, Hutch. Hey, I cannot co-host. First of all, I'm a terrible co-host. Uh, but second of all, I'm going to have to jump probably right at 3.30 or right after it. Oh, no, no problem. I actually hold the spaces for roughly about an hour to hour and a half. So it's it's not going to go too too far over. Okay. In the past, so I've been really bad about like juggling people. But there are people that are more proficient at it than I am. In fact, not only that, but um, uh, audio-wise, like uh, sometimes I have to jump down, jump back up. It's a nightmare. Uh, okay. And Android, nice. Twitter, they still haven't figured their stuff out. Now, this is, I run spaces kind of on the down low when it comes to Twitter, because Twitter's not my main platform. I turn these into podcasts, and I use them on LinkedIn and just on uh, Spotify and all the other podcast broadcasting, like iHeartRadio, I et cetera. Cool. So basically, you just take this, grab the recording, and do that? Yep. So less people, the merrier. Even though when you're in a space on Twitter, you're looking down like, oh, no, I don't have a room full. It really doesn't matter. It's about the content and the context of uh, the whole purpose of my spaces. I try to onboard more people from TradFi or people that don't have a general um, education background and financial literacy of what mm-hmm. they what they do is they come into crypto Twitter and they're kind of uh, onboarded by not so friendly individuals or a lot of stuff that they have to learn that really doesn't even matter. So this is my entire purpose of uh, Web3 Startup Pack, just helping to unpack Web3. I like it. Well, cool. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if you're waiting for more ears and no, eyes here. We don't have to. Um, I want to say thank you for coming on in and Casey, I appreciate you popping in as well. Uh, Ryan is, uh, or Obi is on his way in. He as well has some, uh, family time that he has to attend to. So I don't want to take up too many people's time, but, um, just to get started. Thank you everybody. This is web three start back financial basics from grade school. And uh, when we end up going to grade school education, we learn about math, we're pushed in, pushed out. And basically, if you want to get any further into financial literacy, which is the understanding effective use of your various financial skills, uh, you have to pay for it in your uh, continued education. So in that case, I have a special guest, Hutch, later on, Ryan and Casey, you are also a special guest. And I just wanted to bring you up if you wanted to do a quick introduction. Sure. Thanks for having me up. Appreciate it. Hope you're doing good, Kit. And Hutch, nice to meet you. See some friendly faces. Duke, Mean, Fairy, Mr. Fantastic. Fox Sears. Um, yeah, I've uh, been in the mortgage industry for over two decades, and I've spearheaded a lot of the Community Reinvestment Act initiatives with local nonprofits focused on financial literacy and helping people read their themselves, their financial footprint, so they can make better decisions. That's uh, kind of my thing. So, yeah, nice to be here. And Hutch, did you want to do a quick introduction? If not, that's perfectly fine. No, sure. Uh, not ready to dox yet on Twitter, but I probably will be by the end of the year. Uh, but I do have uh, a lot of that continuing education that you talked about. I call it alphabet soup. Uh, had the CFP uh, 2011, but since dropped it uh, just because I didn't agree with some of their 
some of their red tape and some just some of their rhetoric. Um, also, it's interesting when you are in the financial business, you have to say this dumb thing. Uh, I'm not allowed to give tax advice. Check with your CPA. And it's like, well, wait a second. When poor or no tax advice can erode uh, somewhere between a quarter to half of your wealth building efforts, how in the world can you give financial advice without tax advice? Uh, so I did pass the enrolled agent exam. Enrolled agent is directly through the IRS. It's not a revenue agent. Does not mean I'm a revenue agent, uh, but it, it does mean that like that I can represent people in. Uh, I can do taxes, which I don't. I don't even do my own, or represent people in tax court, which I wouldn't. But I just didn't want to have to say I'm not allowed to give tax advice. Uh, accredited estate planner as well. It doesn't mean I'm an estate planning attorney. It just means I'm somewhat knowledgeable in that stuff, as well as a couple others. CHFC which is Chartered Financial Consultant and CLU Chartered Life Underwriter. So kind of loaded with the alphabet soup. And I always tell clients it doesn't really matter. Uh, it really comes down to experience in the field. Uh, so I've been been working with clients, uh, retail clients, for the last decade and a half in terms of um, you know different facets of financial planning. I did actually sell a firm in 2021. And that's so I could make content online because it's kind of a weird thing. It's like if you have licenses and you share content online, you're held to all this scrutiny. And it's like, you can't say this, you can't do this. But if you don't have those, you can kind of share things from an educational context, which is just, it's just doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, but for that reason, I just uh, got out of that uh, wealth management slash investment advice industry um, strictly so I can do financial education and financial entertainment and that, and I would qualify and hopefully Kit, you'll back me that uh, at least nothing I say should be construed as financial advice here, uh, financial edutainment. <laughs> so definitely verify everything with competent counsel and advisors that you have on your team. A hundred percent. I just, I stopped saying that, that little spiel about, okay, uh, do your own research and so forth. But um, yeah, everything that people end up hear, hearing on the internet, uh, we're just random internet personalities and strangers and uh, just consult someone that, somebody that you know personally that is licensed and local within your unique situation. But uh, yeah, you know, Hutch, the things that you end up talking about right there is that uh, your little alphabet soup reasoning is also the kind of problem scrutiny that we end up having with our just basic uh, public education system for grade schooling. Uh, we, we, by the way, my background, I have a little bit of a, a smorgasbord as well, a cornucopia of uh, different licensings in different states and I'm not going to go into too much detail on that, but I'm pretty um, transparent. If people have questions, they can always ask me. Um, Twitter is an easy way to get a hold of me. But in, in that case, when it comes to education system, like I'm in the state of Michigan, and one of the things with public education, and unless it is a secondary, uh, like homeschooling uh, outreach, that you are not allowed to really teach financial literacy within the classroom. Why? Everything you just said. If you are, do not hold the certain licensures, unfortunately, you can't. It's it's the scrutiny and liability of the state. Casey, don't raise your hand, sir. Just talk. <laughs> you know, habits. Um, I, I always enjoy these conversations, and it always startles me, like, 
There is a distinction between financial literacy, education, and advice. But when we talk about financial literacy, you know, we're just talking about being able to read your own finances. We're not telling you what to buy or what to do with your money. Just how do you read your credit? How do you read your debt ratio? How do you read your reserves? You know, and do you have a handle on reading your collateral in any sense? So I like to focus on the literacy component and I call it like the mirror protocol. I'm not here to tell you what to do. I'm just here to show you what is. Exactly. But they don't even teach you the components like in the nitty gritty. Like when we talk about finances, there's three components that they should educate you on is that, um, you know, I call them Mickey classes, which are one on ones, you know, Mickey Mouse to just to get by the skin your teeth within college credit courses is your three components is uh, make sure that your budget is up to date. What is a budget? Uh, You know, having a form of dedicated savings and whatever that savings looks to you. And then they also teach you ID theft protection. And uh, (laughs) Hutch. Yeah, I I, I just uh, I saw something on Twitter uh, the other day uh, and it was a quote by uh, John D. Rockefeller, who apparently was really uh, instrumental in, in donating and championing, championing the effort for the uh, U.S. Department of Education. And he said, I don't want a nation of thinkier, thinkers. I want a nation of workers. So a uh, little bit of uh, tinfoil hat stuff. But if you, I mean, if you think about it, school started during the Industrial Revolution uh, across the pond. And then it was, you know, forwarded here. Uh, my wife is in education and and her and I have disagreements uh, because, you know, I I feel the same way that, that my kids aren't, aren't getting the literacy they need. And we talk about it, but they're so consumed with uh, the joke is like the powerhouse of a cell and all kinds of stuff. Like I don't have a scientist, like really, like, do we need to go that deep with this stuff? Uh, And you're right. They should know how to read their own credit. They should know how to, do a, bu- a basic budget. They should know how to uh, understand what mortgage amortization is and what a progressive tax system is and and how to fill out a 1040. I mean, like, absolutely they should. But again, there's another saying, uh, you have to pay your taxes, but you don't need to leave a tip. And there's a lot of people that, you know, just because of the fear of audit, uh, end up leaving a lot of possible deductions on the table. So there, there's a little bit of a conflict of interest in the system to not uh, educate people thoroughly and to let them kind of fend for themselves in their quote unquote spare time. Uh, in today's, I don't even know what you'd call it, but you know, where we, with all the technology, we should be working less and have more time, but it's not the case in order to shoot, not even get ahead, just stay ahead. You got to work your butt off. A hundred percent. Don't, don't you think it's astonishing the, like it's like a cultural predatory marketing system that the people just keep on getting ground up in. Like you're working with a high net worth client and they got a lot of stuff. They got a lot in the bank, but they've got a lifestyle cost that is just through the roof. And, you know, you just see people living continuously beyond their means. And, you know, it's, I, I have empathy for them. Like they're just sold down the river in the system. And I see it all the time. It's it's startling. Do you, do you see that as well? Oh yeah, 
Yeah, I, I, I even feel it to a degree, raising a family of five in, uh, in a high-tax state. I mean, it's, it's, it's brutal, right? And, you know, it's one thing to talk about budging and make your coffee at home, but when you got three kids and it's like, no, nah, you can't do these activities like your friends, right? Like, eh. it's like I don't know how well that's going to go over. So you're right, it is, there is a little bit of peer pressure or, or societal pressure. And at the same time, it's like, it, it, you know, you, you want to provide those opportunities. And, and the one the one thing I do believe in with education, the one I think the probably the biggest value of traditional education is, is really the socialization. And, you know, we hear it all the time. It's not what you know, it's who you know. Um, and uh, let's face it, you get that. You build those relationships oftentimes through the school system. Um, and you just learn how to, you know, operate with people, coexist with people. The ones you do like, the ones you don't like, the ones that, you know, there's some kind of transactional relationship, a teacher or whatever, a small group you have to work in. Like those skills are very, very important, um, you know, and so to to do all the free stuff, I guess, but not do the extracurricular stuff, which is, I mean, it's just getting crazy expensive, all that stuff, um, you know, that would my kids in, in a bad spot. Uh, but by the way, uh, since people are listening, not on Twitter, I'm at Hutch on the go on Twitter, H-U-T-C-H-O-N-T-H-E-G-O. Yeah. I, I do put in the descriptions uh, everything that my speakers are currently doing and their personal time that they want to disclose and like websites and any projects that they're working on. That way people can have, have access links to the content and so forth. So after this, if you want to share more, you can send me a descriptive uh, message or in that case, not i will just automatically include your handle and if you have a link tree and so forth yep not yet gonna gonna be doing the link tree stuff probably later this year yeah but i mean the one question i end up having all right so in education i don't know how i'm not full on into the financial system uh since you know, it's been about 15 years. Yeah, about the time that you've been doing your tax services and uh, housing market services there. The rule of thumb that I was taught was a 50-30 or 50-20, um, uh, which was the rule of thumb, how you, you go by your, your needs, your wants, and your debt ratio. And I was going through an Excel spreadsheet trying to figure out, okay, what's the general housing market average cost per state and what are the needs and costs, food costs, for example, and then what is left over for wants versus even doing like an 80-20 rule of budgeting methods with, um, you know, trying to save 20% for your savings off before you go into all that. I was like, it's not practical. I mean, is there, is there a new algorithm to go about? No, but there should be. The the problem I see most frequently is that it's it's not uh, looked at as a variable. It's looked at as a static. Okay, it's always going to be this way. Here's your here's your data. Here's your system. It's always going to be the same. Versus training someone to read that information and process new information that throws off what it looks like now, so that you can you can get used to the ebbs and flows of the cost of living versus trying to have one singular fixed point. And so you may shift between a, you know, 50, 30, 20 and a 60, 20, 20, or, you know, it, it'll shift and change over time. So, you know, being able to recognize just what's happening 
and adjust accordingly as you need is is where I feel like the hope is on on those rule sets. So I I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Uh, I was just going to say when we so when I was a financial planner and we would have people that wanted to do fee based planning, I would tell them, okay, look, you can pay me a big project fee. 3,500 to create this 50 page financial plan. And it's just like Casey said, I'm going to be using a lot of assumptions. Now forget the ones five years ago. Like those are just completely and totally obsolete. Like it's, it's, it's kindling at this point. Uh, How about the ones that maybe you just did six months ago and the new assumptions around interest rates and inflation or market, you know, market averages or whatever, you know, I always tell people they're an average of one. And so I could, I would, I would, what I would do instead of doing that, I'd say, why don't we do it hourly? And I can kind of show you the stress tests and the kind of the key drivers around that. And you can understand it in real time in a fluid situation and kind of understand if you're on track today, but really you need to be revisiting this once a year, at least once every couple of years as these variables change. So I couldn't agree more with what Casey was saying. The, the, the whole flaw of averages planning it hurts people more than it helps people because even if they get a 55 page binder and it looks good, they put it in their junk drawer and in their mind, there's a little bit of complacency like, okay, I'm good. Right. But then money is not math. It's more like organic chemistry, right? It's not like this linear thing that just like what it's like constantly in flux. Uh, And so it needs to be revisited. Yeah. I mean, in that sense, so borrowing money is a debt, but in, in the sense of how we spend and we borrow money nowadays, there's a narrative of saying that, okay, now all borrowing is bad. And to protect yourself, there's also insurances. That's a, you know, a little safety net for people. And in that sense, can you explain how that works so people actually understand what the real narrative is? Can, can you clarify that for me? There was a lot oh, there. So like, just, 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 just be more specific about the type of borrowing and the type of insurance. Well, I, I'm going from, I'm just thinking back when, a, you know, people trying to enter into college, not everybody can actually fund their colleging. So they're going to do like federal tuition grants and so forth, or uh, take additional uh, debt ratios for borrowing with expectations that they're going to end up getting uh, a job that's going to get income to pay off their debt. But uh, some, some they're also expecting not going to have to pay off. Uh, the spend to borrow ratio is a huge problem that we're facing with our financial um, literacy or you know expectations within the United States and all over the world. We're seeing what's happening within the economy, and in that sense, um, we're we're like what's currently happened within the news with the banking systems. We've seen how insurances have you know, quote unquote, protected um, certain institutions, certain individuals. And I was hoping you'd be able to explain a little bit more of how like spend to borrow ratios um, really take place and where insurance uh, comes out of. I'll, I'll defer to Casey or it looks like Stevens here right now. <laughs> and welcome, Steven. So I'll, I'll throw this out there real quick. Um, there's like a normalization 
in the society that, you know, yeah, everyone's got debt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lenders will give you, you know, 45%, 50% of your debt ratio on a mortgage. You can do it. It's fine. Look, there's a rule set. It's okay. So there's like, it's, it's normalized. Take on the debt. It's fine. Finance whatever you need. There's needs and there's wants, like you pointed out before. And the marketing tries to breach that barrier and entice people to, you know, go into debt heavier because that's part of the economic mechanism of them making money. So um, we're in a situation where debt is normalized. It's normal to have a heavy debt ratio. If you look at your credit debt ratio, most lenders don't want to see it go above 50% in general. Um, but when you look at your actual cost of living as a debt ratio, including your credit debt ratio, most people are writing at 90%, 95, 101. They're chewing through their savings at 120. And so we were seeing the impact of it. And my opinion is that it's just the debt has been normalized as part of living. So you have to get real creative and avoid putting yourself in a heavier debt situation. It takes a lot of effort. And and it's, to be fair, it's effort enough that not everybody has to give. So, again, it's part of the environment. you got to just do your best with it. Thanks, Casey. I was trying to kind of, I was trying to give a leading question into uh, general rules of engagement when we talk about monetization and how the, the cycle of money works within our traditional finance system of uh, the money that you put in allows money to be borrowed um, based off a percentage of what you have as collateral within the banking system. And it's just an endless cycle. Um, and in that part, though, with inflation, um, where our, our amounts that we currently have in um, reserves is just basically ex- overexpended. Um, in that sense, what we're seeing currently is we're transitioning into a more digitized money, which I don't like to use the word cryptocurrency, but it's digitizing the money, which you do with digital transactions with um, banking on your phone or on the computer is the same, except you're using a, uh, a ledger in blockchain technology. And that's where it has a cryptography computer language associated to it. And that's, what we're doing with our current uh, financial literacy with our finances is nothing scary to go into cryptocurrency, but it's understanding the fundamentals of what financial literacy really is. And I want to say welcome, Stephen. Hello, Ms. Baronas, Casey, and um, Hutch. I... Uh... I, I dove in on your EDU knowledge drop um, and took the mic more than anything to draw attention to this nice group. So hopefully we'll uh, we'll get some people in here to um, relish your knowledge as I've been. Always appreciate it, you coming on in. And uh, well, 
the thing about the financial literacy aspect of it, because people, you know, taking a step back further again, is that not too many people get into Web3 or just everyday adulting and understand how the tax work. There's always someone to go to your tax accountant and then tax accountant, well, you have to go to financial advisors and you have to go to your legalities and none of them are on a one-stop shop, which is very, very frustrating, but understanding the principles behind what financial literacy so you can think for yourself is very important. And that's what uh, this space is supposed to be about. Uh, I, I couldn't agree more. So, Having been in practice, I can honestly tell people that nobody will care enough about your financial situation than you will. So if there was a one-stop shop, you know, for the, call it the above average Joe or, or whatever, it's very, very difficult for somebody to run that as a business, having been on the business side. And there are family offices, but they're dedicated to those family offices. I mean, because they're paying a whole team of people very high salaries. So the best thing that you can do for yourself is to push through the knee-jerk reaction, like this is stressful, it's complicated, it's stressing me out, and to take advantage of opportunities that, uh, like Kid is doing here, to provide information that you can begin to, over time, understand how all these different facets work for each work with each other so that you can either, A, do it yourself, or at least you know what to ask and what to look for when you're interviewing, say, a team of, of professionals. Because you really do, it, you know, it does take a village, right? And typically, I call it the cruise ship view. Like, let's say you have a team. Well, having interacted with high net worth uh, advisory teams, a lot of times the attorney doesn't necessarily know what the accountant's doing uh, or the wealth manager or the insurance person. And, it, you know, you need to be the captain that's up there at the top of the ship looking around a 360 view because all those other professionals, those subject matter experts, they're going to be looking at their portal. Like the, the accountant, all they're thinking about is save me taxes this year, save me taxes this year, which oftentimes comes with deferral. Uh, and if we're going into a higher tax rate environment, that may not be the best strategy for long term, but that's how they're graded. So that's what they're going to be thinking about. Uh, and the attorneys for the high net worth families, they're thinking about what's the maximum value of death? How do we maximize value of death? And with some of those estate planning strategies comes a loss of control, comes a lack, a lack of access, and that may not be what the client wants. Uh, you know, same thing with the insurance people. They're going to be thinking about insurance. And so they're all looking at their different parts of the portal from different parts of the ship. And it's really hard to find somebody who's qualified to give you that panoramic view. So it's it's really up to you to to be educated enough to be the cohesion behind these different advisors. And of course, Hutch is not using misleading investment advice. He's just giving you facts. Yeah. I, I wanted to weigh in a little bit on the, on the, the, the debt stuff. So unfortunately, you know, we're coming out of a, a decade of, you know, historically low interest rates that probably won't be seen for a long time, but who knows? Like, who knows? <laughs> they, need to, they may need to pivot to oblivion, but unfortunately, in the last decade, uh, savers were punished and borrowers were rewarded. Uh, I have a lot of ex-clients that made a lot of money using other people's money. Uh, I did want to make the distinction of, yeah, you don't want to take on too much debt that you can't service 
yourself under the worst, you know, again, we're talking about stress testing things under the worst case scenario, uh, which is also where some of your insurances and whatnot come into play. Um, but, you know, having some sort of selective leverage, even if it's just like a 30 year mortgage on your house where you put the 20% down, that has allowed, it allowed people in the low interest rate environment to build wealth they wouldn't otherwise be able to build. Uh, unfortunately, now, some of those practices that were even accepted, right, we don't know where interest rates are going to go. And so it, it becomes a much more dicey game. So I think, whereas there's a lot of people I know that realize that there was an advantage to using leverage and over other people's money, uh, and they could just do so and not have to worry about it. If you're going to take on leverage in this environment going forward, you really, really have to be mindful of stress testing that. Uh, like Kit said, with collateral, making sure that you don't get under collateralized because that's how you can lose your assets and essentially sell them at the bottom. Uh, but also to make sure you can service that debt. There's still the advantage of it of say like a 30 year mortgage. Like I, I took on, I actually bought during COVID and I put down as little as I had to. It was 20%. I locked in a 30 year, but now I'm quite happy I did. I haven't made any extra mortgage payments and nor do I plan to because uh, if we are going to enter a period of inflation, I'd rather pay those. I'd rather make those payments in the future with devalued dollars due to inflation than I would be to sacrifice capital that I needed now, if that makes sense. And having seen, let's just say I've seen the people that were hardcore Dave Ramsey or whatever, like pay off all the debt first. And so what happens is they lose out on compounding is they end up paying off their house early, but then they get to like mid fifties, late fifties, and they don't really have a lot of time to compound. Sorry, I just got a call. They don't have really have a lot of time to compound. So everything's paid off. That's great. But now they've really missed out on, on a compounding wave. I don't know if we're going to get a really low interest rate environment again, but since asset prices are being repriced, I think I think it is an opportunity for people to look at um, investments that they would like to own long term, be it real estate or stocks or whatever it is, and to kind of have their price in mind and find a way to be able to acquire those assets in a model that they know they can ser service under any circumstances, whether that's using some form of leverage or not. Would you say uh, the real 69 for a compound interest still works nowadays just to figure out what your, your doubling fund would be? Did everything just go quiet or, or did I, like when somebody called me, did I lose it? Can you hear me Can right anybody now? hear me? I can hear you. Here, I'm throwing a thumbs up. Can you hear me right now, Hutch? Okay. Is anybody talking? Because I can't hear anybody. Okay. I am going to kick you down and bring you back up. Let's see if that works. Oh, he left and he's going to come back. But yes, I appreciate Hutch coming up all the time because he always drops so much to unpack. And Hutch, welcome back. Can you hear me now? I can hear you now. It got all quiet. I'm like, oh, wow. I just, uh, I don't think that was like a mic drop moment. So something must be wrong. It, it was a mic drop moment. You're just... <laughs> It completely was for sure. I was just trying to, I like, I, I have a lot of words. And the one thing that was kind of a stupid question, but uh, I was just trying to do a filler because uh, in, in the rule of uh, compounding, um, there's um, the finance rule of 69. Does that still work with uh, trying to figure out your uh, comp uh, compound interest rate for doubling? Is that a quick divide? Now the rule of 69, I, I think that's something else. I think you're talking about the rule of 62. <laughs> Or, I'm sorry, 
72. Yes. Yes. Uh, well, that, that's the, with the that's with 72 is with the interest rate, but that's not with the com- compound interest. But you, I don't know anything about finance. That's why I have you here. Yeah, yeah. So the rule, rule of 72 is, is a good measure to find out when you're doubling, but uh, it's, it's fun to play around with just a compound interest calculator, because I think that what people don't realize is even just the slightest incremental change uh, can make a massive difference over time, right? Like people think like, Oh, what's the difference between uh, 5% and four and a half percent. It actually makes a massive difference. I'll tell you something else that's interesting. If you, if you measure, like if you do have leverage of some sort, be it real estate or whatever, that it, like, say, say you have an asset that's compounding at five, let's just say, and again, I hate averages, but it's just a fun exercise to understand how compounding works. If you, if you have an asset that, that is compounding at five, and let's just say you have debt against it at four, a lot of people would think like, oh, well, no big deal. That's like making 1%. It's actually not. If you ran the same amount of money compounding at 1%, it's far less. And it depends on what time frame, but you're going to find it's like far less, like like less than half on any kind of uh, like double digit time frame. And it has to do with the, the top line compounding number. So when something's compounding at five, that that top line number creates that bigger, steeper compound curve. And if, it'd be great if we had some visuals here, I could show you guys, but just try and imagine like that curve, it gets steeper on the right-hand side. Like it's, it gets almost parabolic. Think of like a reverse ski jump, right? The bigger the number gets. So even though it's a 1% differential, and even if you weren't, and I don't recommend this, if you have debt, you should obviously service it. Uh, but even if you weren't servicing that 4% debt compounding against you, the fact that the five is compounding, it creates a massive number. And it's the same thing. If you if you kicked it up to, say, 7% growth with 6% debt compounding against you, you get way more compounding because of that top-line number, that kind of reverse ski jump look. Um, it's, it's just, again, I'm not... I'm not saying that people should just go and practice reckless leverage because when you're dealing with assets, you're not going to get a smooth average. There's going to be volatility. Uh, and as Kit said, you could just get shaken out of your position at the dead lows. But it is interesting to see that. And I'll, I'll tell you another thing that a lot of times people forget when it comes to debt or leverage. As long as you're paying the interest, at least on whatever the debt is, like we can use that five and four. If you're paying the interest on four, Essentially, you're paying simple interest because you flatten the balance. Like they can never charge you more than four because it's never compounding against you. And if you can flatten the interest and pay simple interest on a lower number than what you can compound at, well, you're earning interest on an, a compound interest on an increasing balance while paying simple interest on a flat balance. And again, assuming, and this is a big assumption that not everybody should make, but assuming you could keep things to the green, meaning you're always earning more than what you can compound at, that's a recipe for success. And you can actually measure, uh, you know, the IRR of the cash flows, meaning your payments. So it's, it's kind of an interesting phenomenon. It's something I've played around with. Uh, again, I'm not advocating that people take on reckless debt or debt that they can't uh, service. But if there is a number you know you can service and you you know that the underlying asset that it's backing uh, is there, 
that is how people, that is how the wealthy have continued to just create these massive estates is they're just constantly doing. That's why you see like billionaires, you know, Mark Zuckerberg took a mortgage, right? Like Mark Zuckerberg doesn't need a mortgage, but he didn't want to cash out his, his Facebook stock and it was down, right? It's still down now, but uh, I was doing something the other day that showed like even with Facebook at 170, when he took his mortgage, Facebook was like 30 and granted Facebook went all the way up to like 350 or whatever it went up to. Even just between the $30 price and the 170, it's almost like he earned a little over 15% by keeping that asset compounded. So people are like, why would he have a mortgage? Why would he have debt? Because he believed in the underlying asset. Uh, Elon, we don't know if this is going to work out. I mean, Elon just pledged Tesla stock for capital to buy Twitter. <laughs> we don't know if it'll work out, but he felt he had enough control over both of the assets to where he figured that was a good use of leverage. It's a little, that's scarier because now you have two kind of variables. And I think he was talking about like, there's a million dollars of debt service or billions, I'm sorry, a billion dollars of debt service he needs to do, which probably why he uh, kicked up the $8 to 11 <laughs> or whatever. I'm sorry. I'm rambling here. No, you're perfectly fine. But I mean, there, there's a little bit of discretion that uh, hasn't been put in there, like the differentiators of like, uh, what's taxable, um, you know, uh, com uh, compact interest rates uh, versus like something that would be in a trust and so forth, whether, you know, uh, for an individual, if they were going to do a compact interest, uh, you know, bring it back down a little bit to something that's palatable would be such as someone that's of turning of age, 18, where they can take control of their uh, finances and investing in a Roth, Roth IRA, and playing within the market and compact interest. Um, for example, uh, individual retirement accounts offers that, you know, a tax-free growth, but tax-free withdrawal, uh, withdrawals upon retirement. Uh, could you give an example of that with compact interest? Yeah, so a, a Roth is a great thing to compound because there's no tax erosion. Like you, you, I call it. It's like you're paying the mob off early, so you're you're paying your taxes on your income as you earn it, and then when you, once you put it in the Roth, it grows tax free, meaning all the growth is it's not even tax deferred. It's just completely tax free. Um, my only issue with the Roth that I think people need to know about is. If they have liquidity, if they have liquidity issues, like, so if they're 20 some years old or 30 years old, a Roth does sound great and nothing can top it when it could, like, if you put the same compound uh, interest rate in a Roth, it'll beat just about anything else because there's no taxes to erode it. No capital gains, no ordinary income along the way, no short-term capital gains. It's just, you get the number. But my issue is when you see a lot of financial gurus saying like, you have to do a Roth first. Like if that person has no liquidity, I, I I don't know if I agree. Like, yeah, it's great to do a Roth, but I like they're kind of acting like it's a, a game of asteroids where they're trying to get a high score. Like, if you don't have liquidity on that, or you have to tap into over and above what you put in and, and tap into some of that growth and you have to pay a 10% tax penalty, how'd you really do? Uh and and here's here's something else that people forget about. Like if you bought and hold, whether it's stocks or crypto, which is taxes property. Basically, almost the same, not exactly the same, almost the same as stocks. People don't realize that you can get tax deferral just by not trading, just by buying and holding. It's tax deferred. Now, you're not paying with pre-tax money like with the 401k. You're paying with your after-tax money. But 
as long as you don't trade and you buy something on sale, like we're starting to see there's sales now and those sales may continue to get better, right? Uh, but if you start dollar cost averaging into this dip of anything, something that you believe in long-term, as long as you hold it and don't trade it, you've gotten tax deferral. The beauty of it is, is if it's not in a retirement account, a retirement account, you have to wait till you're 59 and a half uh, to get access. The one exception is if you have a company 401k plan, you can take a loan, right? But if you get fired, the loan is due within 90 days. And if not, there's taxes and interest. So it's, it's a backstop, but it's not the end all be all. You shouldn't be using it as a piggy bank. But if you have assets on your person in a taxable stock account, or you have crypto uh, and that you have methods, means to borrow against it, I, I, I'm not, I'm going to defer to the crypto experts here. Uh, as far as ways to do it while keeping custody, but you can actually borrow against those assets and that loan is tax-free. Like if you type up like uh, Jeff Bezos, tax-free, you know, stock, Mark Zuckerberg, Elon Musk, people are pissed. People are pissed because it's another one of the secrets of the wealthy is they don't sell stock and pay these massive capital gains to buy stuff or to consume stuff or even to buy other companies like, like uh, Elon does. They borrow against their assets. They borrow against the assets because by borrowing against the unrecognized gains, there's no tax on that. Um, and so that's, that's another, it's another way to do it. I don't recommend it without stress testing things, but I think it's, it's often an overlooked or forgotten um, strategy by the above average show. Right, it's something that's reserved for billionaires, but really, anybody with a margin account could do it. We've all heard that margin is bad, and it can be. You can get totally wrecked. There's no question. And what the ultra wealthy understand and and know with their advisors is that if they collateralize at a very reasonable level, and I can just we can just give some examples. Like, let's say you had a hundred thousand dollar account, just for round numbers. And you had an expense. Well, you can cash out, let's say, fifteen thousand of stock. Like you need an emergency, you need whatever two months of, of cash flow. If you cash out fifteen thousand of stock, you'll have fifteen thousand. You're going to owe some tax by the end of the year. You know who knows what? It depends on your gains. But if you borrow the same fifteen thousand against your assets, well, first of all, you don't need to sell them. Second of all, if we looked at it. You'd really need to lose over 70,000 of your whole portfolio's value before there was even like one penny of liquidation, right? But people don't look at that. They just, they've heard. And like that, that's something else I've realized with finances is there's a lot of stuff that we've just accepted willy nilly. Like somebody said it, we heard a couple people say it, somebody on TV said it, our brother said it. And so we just kind of accept it like gospel. But that's what the wealthy are doing is they're working with advisors, they're stress testing different hypotheses, and, and they're, they're using some of these advanced strategies. And people are saying, oh, it's reserved for the wealthy. It's not. It's just that they're using it and we're not. Uh, but it's, it's, it's something that's very, very interesting to me. Yeah, the individual uh, retirement accounts, I, I just threw out Roth because it's one of my favorites, favoritisms for individuals that don't uh, really get into a 401k or have a price match with their current employment and versus a traditional um, for individuals that are from 18 until let's see, I forgot age 25. If they just invested like $200 for per month. And after let's say age 25, seven years, 
they decide, okay, I can't invest because I moved out of the household. You know, your fiduciary responsibility of like, uh, if your child is a full-time student until age 25, you're still fiduciary responsible as a guardian and parental. But in, at that point in time, they decide, okay, I'm not going to keep investing. That compact interest will still be there for them upon retirement. And that's uh, one of the reasons why I always say, okay, a Roth. But uh, I didn't mean that was just a slip of the tongue. Yeah. No, no, I, I, I love a Roth IRA. I just, I don't think it should be the first move if somebody has no liquidity. That's the point I was trying to make. But I like, I love Roth myself. And so I'll give you guys a little wealth hack if you guys like Roth too. Um, and you have sufficient liquidity on the outside. So the maximum for 2023 is $6,500. Uh, so you can put 6500 into a Roth. Um, and then you can't do anything into pre-tax, which there's a good argument why you may not want to, but, uh, for those of you that are in high income States or you're bumping up against the highest brackets and you'd sure like to defer and get some of that money working for you. And like I said, as a backstop, you can borrow against a pre-tax retirement account. You can't borrow against any kind of Roth IRA or traditional IRA, but you can against a 401k. And so for anybody who's self-employed, you could set up a self-directed 401k. Um, you can do it free. If you're just going to do brokerage stuff, you can actually go to certain companies and you can set it up, uh, you know, pay, call it a thousand dollars to set up a self-directed 401k for your business. And by doing so, your Roth limit goes from 6,500 to 22,500 with no income caps, no income limitations. Like, oh, you make too much money. You can't do your 6,500 in a Roth. That's a Roth IRA. But a Roth 401k, you actually can if you set up a self-directed uh, 401k. The If you're just going to do TradFi, you could go to E-Trade, and it's free uh, to set that up. A lot of the other brokers stopped doing Roth. You could set up a self-directed 401k, but not the post-tax Roth. But E-Trade, you still can. And like I said, you can go to, uh, I like Broad Financial, uh, Broad Financial uh will help you create your own trust. And that's all a solo 401k is. And the maximum limit total for the year, like if you were going to do pre-tax or excuse me, yes, pre-tax, it's 66,000. So like, you're like, if you're thinking, oh, I can only do 6,500 or if I do a SEP, I can do 25% of my salary, right? If you do a solo 401k, you can actually do both. You can do 25% of your salary up to 66,000. But of that 66,000, 22,500 can be a Roth. So it's a way where you can get a lot more. And I know there's backdoor Roths and all these other things that they may close that loop at some point. Totally black letter law. You can set up these plans. Uh, and, and if it's self-directed, you can really invest in whatever you want. I appreciate that. Um, could you real quick give a, um, a definition of what the backdoor back or self-direction is? Yeah, so a self-directed self-directed means that you're choosing the investments. So with um, with retirement plan law, there's something called the prudent man rule. So you you need to you're supposed to pick investments that are deemed to be diversified and everything else. Uh, there's no self-dealing, so you can't like you can't like invest in real estate you're actively involved in and things like, or your own business with your 401k, but you can invest in stocks, crypto, certain real estate projects that are passive 
private money lending. You, there's all kinds of things that you can do that you wouldn't necessarily have access to at, say, a brokerage like E-Trade, which there's nothing wrong with. If you're going to stay kind of vanilla TradFi, it's great. But um, they're not going to let you hold crypto on a ledger, right? They're not going to let you do yield farming. Like, they don't even have that option. But with a self-directed 401k, uh, and again, you have to talk to those people and they'll let you know what you can and what you can't do, what's black letter law, what's gray area. When you run a self-directed 401k, you're the fiduciary of your plan. And so the onus is, uh, is on you to make sure that you're doing a good job of picking the investments for your retirement plan. Um, but it's a way to have a little more flexibility, more control, and self-custody is obviously a big thing, especially in the crypto space. It's the only way to have self-custody in a retirement account. I love how you just tied that together. Thank you, Hutch. I appreciate it. We are coming up to the hour, and I know that you have to go fairly soon. And I actually, I think we covered enough for people to absorb. If you'd like to do some closing out statements, I and the floor is open. Um, I, I don't know if anybody else wants to talk. I feel like I've been talking the whole time. So. <laughs> you made the space. And, and actually, I, I, I'm going to be, I'll be in the car, but I can take questions if people have questions too. Well, Stephen ended up giving a awesome calculator for compact interest for a fun little tool if you like to just post it in the bottom or the top of the nest uh, for other people in the future if they want to click on it please do i can also include that into the twitter space or not twitter space but the podcast also i will be cleaning up anything that was in here the ums the ands and the just random conversations such as oh no he dropped can you hear me can you hear me well, that's a lot of work. Good for you for uh, for doing doing all that cleanup. I know how much work that is in post. Um, I, I did want to say one more thing about self-directed 401k that I like for people that are self-employed. I talked about using the 401k loan against, you can't do that against Roth, but you can do it against the pre-tax. So if somebody was able to max out a self-directed 401k, they could do 22.5 in the Roth, then they can do 66,000 minus 22.5. So what is that? 43,500 in the pre-tax. If you were in a state like mine where you might pay 50% tax if you were in the highest bracket, it may be better as much as, much as you think taxes might go up in the future. It may be better to go ahead and defer it in there, especially with if you have a self-directed 401k, then you don't really need to worry about getting fired. And that is the one risk about borrowing from a company 401k. The company 401k, you can get fired and then everything's due, but it's not like you're going to fire yourself, right? <laughs> so it's kind of a great backstop emergency fund. Um, and emergency fund is another one of those things where people are like, yeah, you got to have your six to nine month emergency fund. And that's great. And I think definitely early on, it is very, very important. But as you build assets, again, using my margin example from the past, like if you built enough asset and kept that money compounding for you and you knew you could borrow against assets without getting liquidated, then why wouldn't you want to have all, like why would you want to have three, six, nine months of expenses just sitting there doing nothing, like earning a compounding of whatever, zero or one or two? Um, 
And so having different places, different pockets of liquidity, like, you know, being able to utilize the retirement plan uh, loan feature that, you know, you have five years to pay off. Uh, so even if you had to borrow the full, by the way, the cap is $50,000 loan, if you have a hundred thousand dollar account, but if you put all that anyway in there and most of it was going to get eroded by taxes, it's almost like a little war chest you could set up for yourself. Uh, and it's just kind of like an out of the box way to think about uh, emergency funds, right? Just having these different pools of liquidity uh, and you don't need to worry about getting liquidated with that because when you take a 401k loan, unlike a margin loan, they actually do liquidate, like you pull money out of the investments and they give you cash. So there's no liquidation risk and you're paying yourself back. You're paying your account back with interest. So just another little kind of workaround that I think most people overlook. Did you just cut out or get a phone call? No, but I, I am, uh, I am transferring to Bluetooth. Oh, gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Cause it abruptly stopped. I'm like, Oh, okay. So closing statements is, well, uh, circling back to the beginning of the topic when you're talking about marginal rates, uh, closing statements would be for making sure that people should talk to their tax advisor. Um, there's no one-stop shop, so unfortunately you have to talk to individual people for different specialties. But when you want to know about your tax marginal rate, uh, when to pay your rates when they're at the lowest, talk to your tax advisor. Yes, always do that. <laughs> you can always, you can Google them too, and you can kind of ballpark where the thresholds are. Um, and they're supposed to be changing. Uh, a lot of people don't realize this, but we, we've had these Tax Cuts and Jobs Act low brackets since 2017, and they're set to sunset, uh, which means go away or revert back to the old ones at the end of 2025. My guess is there'll be some additional legislation uh, before then, but it's, it's a big concern. And that's my big concern with pre-tax IRAs or 401ks is the fact that as, as a country here in the U S we have 31 trillion in debt. And now with rising interest, they're saying our, our just the debt service alone on these, on, on our national debt is more than military spending. So at some point they're going to have to come back inside uh, and tax us all a little bit more, um, which is why, which is why those types of retirement plans, even though they, they've kind of like lost their luster to Roth as well, they should like in a very low tax environment, like just pay off the mob early, do max out the Roth. But as taxes become more penal, uh, which I think we're going to see over the next five to certainly 10 years, uh, you know, the traditional pre-tax IRA 401k will become more appealing. Uh, when you do that, you are kind of putting money into a black hole or a, a moving target. Like you just don't know what you're going to get taxed at on the way out. But again, if like, even right now in my state, if you're uh, near the top bracket and there's no uh, deduction for state tax. I mean, you're, you're already like, if you do nothing, you're losing half. <laughs> and uh, people usually think of whatever the top stack talk top tax bracket is, but there's always been low and middle and high brackets. And so, you know, there are ways to 
extract money from that plan in the future in one of the lower brackets, especially if you just kind of think of a faucet. If you just gush the faucet, if everything you have is in a 401k, then yeah, you're kind of screwed because you, you have to turn on the faucet to gush mode. But if you just kind of drip it out, right, you might be able to stay in the lower brackets. So if you are deferring it in a high uh, tax rate environment, but you are able to take it on a low tax rate environment, which by the way, that was like an assumption for years. Everybody just said it. Like it was like gospel, like you will be at a lower tax bracket. Really? It's like gravity. Like for sure. I will. Can I get that in writing? <laughs> uh, but just having a little bit of knowledge, like we were talking about in the first place and, and make, making sure you're balanced your investments to different types, the tax deferred, the tax free, uh, the tax taxable, managing some of that with loans rather than withdrawals like the wealthy do, uh, you might be able to optimize your tax situation in the future. So that was a lot. Closing statements. What do we got? <laughs> Closing statements. Uh, you know what? Even if it's stressful, get informed. So even if you're going to use professionals, get informed well enough to where you understand the dynamics between not just investment choices, not just what the best crypto is, not just like what the best index fund is, but understand the impact of taxes. Whoops. And we did talk about loans and leverage. You need to be more conscious in this environment because rates are going up, uh, volatility is going up. And if you are running at loan to value thresholds that are pushing the envelope, like our other friend said he left the call, you can get wrecked. You can end up losing your stuff at the at the lowest point. So uh, be sure to learn how to stress test your leverage levels. There you have it. Hutch on the go at Twitter. I appreciate that, Hutch. Thank you for carrying the space this entire time. So the five principles everyone should understand about their finances is how to protect themselves, how to spend, how to borrow, how to save with their investments, and understanding your earning benefits. So thank you so much, everybody, for stopping on in. I appreciate everyone's time. and You take care. Enjoy your weekend. Thanks, Kit.